take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Numbers. Today, as we continue in our series through this book uh, of the Old Testament law, we are in chapter 15. Uh, Today's reading will be just about as long as last week's, but very different. Last week, we were hearing a bit of narrative, and this week, we turn to uh, some regulations, some laws for God's people concerning sacrifices and sin and uh, and things like tassels on garments. Uh, but there is gold to be mined in these pages. Uh, and so we are going to read together in Numbers, the entirety of the chapter, Numbers chapter 15, verses 1 through 41. You can find that, if you haven't already, in our cart Bibles on page 123. Numbers chapter 15. Before we read this word together, please join me in another word of prayer as we seek God's blessing on our study. Let's pray. Gracious God and loving Father, we thank you that you have sent your holy men of old, carried along by your Spirit, that you should write down these words that we might have hope in you. Help us by the encouragement of your Spirit to find that hope in our Savior, and help us through your word to see the way that you are preparing for atonement through him. Help us to see the way that you call your people to walk with you and that you are the Lord of faithfulness. Help us to see these things and rejoice and to worship you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now God's word as we find it, Numbers chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land you are to inhabit, which I am giving you, and you offer to the Lord from the herd or from the flock a food offering, or a burnt offering, or a sacrifice, to fulfill a vow, or as a free will offering, or at your appointed feasts, to make a pleasing aroma to the Lord, then he who brings his offering shall offer to the Lord a grain offering, of a tenth of an ephah of fine flour, mixed with a quarter of a hin of oil. And you shall offer with the burnt offering, or for the sacrifice, a quarter of a hin of wine for the drink offering for each lamb. Or for a ram, you shall offer a grain offering, two-tenths of an ephah, of fine flour mixed with a third of a hin of oil. And for the drink offering, you shall offer a third of a hin of wine, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And when you offer a bull as a burnt offering or sacrifice to fulfill a vow or for a peace offering to the Lord, then one shall offer with the bull a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a half a hin of oil. And you shall offer for the drink offering half a hin of wine, as a food offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Thus it shall be done for each bull or ram, or for each lamb or young goat. As many as you offer, so shall you do with each one, as many as there are. Every native Israelite shall do these things in this way, in offering a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And if a stranger is sojourning with you, or anyone is living permanently among you, and he wishes to offer a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, he shall do as you do. For the assembly there shall be one statute for you and for the sojourner who sojourns with you, a statute forever throughout your generations. You and the sojourner shall be alike before the Lord. One law and one rule shall be for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land to which I bring you, and when you eat of the bread of the land 
you shall present a contribution to the Lord. Of the first of your dough, you shall present a loaf as a contribution. Like a contribution from the threshing floor, so shall you present it. Some of the first of your dough you shall give to the Lord as a contribution throughout your generations. But if you sin unintentionally and do not observe all these commandments that the Lord has spoken to Moses, all that the Lord has commanded you by Moses from the day that the Lord gave commandment and onward throughout your generations, then if it was done unintentionally, without the knowledge of the congregation, all the congregation shall offer one bull from the herd for a burnt offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord with its grain offering and drink offering, according to the rule, and one male goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the people of Israel, and they shall be forgiven, because it was a mistake. And they have brought their offering, a food offering to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for their mistake. And all the congregation of the people of Israel shall be forgiven." and the stranger who sojourns among them, because the whole population was involved in the mistake. If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat a year old for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally. For him who is native among the people of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, to fall, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you were inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord, your God. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. Uh, well, you know that every household uh, has rules that belong only to the family. Rules that are applied inside in a way that are not applied outside. If you have children, as they get older, they begin to notice some of those rules and some of the differences between your family and the families that you spend time with. Most of the time, it's small things. Uh, differences about screen time when they're young or bedtime, differences about table manners and the words that you use and the way that you dress and the, the way that you spend your time, all sorts of things in your family. And then, well, as your teenagers begin itching for more freedom, uh, those differences look a lot larger, don't they? 
those differences begin to feel more like obstacles. And that's when uh, every caring parent learns to say wise and helpful things. Things like, I don't care what they do in their house. <laughs> in our family, we fill in the blank. Every family has rules that are applied inside. And the same is true for God's family, for his household. That's what we find today in Numbers chapter 15. We encounter a series of laws that the Lord gave his children during the days while they wandered in the wilderness. It seems like an abrupt change of subject. In chapter 15, we move from this dramatic rebellion outside of the land of Canaan in chapter 14 back to seemingly mundane things. Things like offerings and rituals and tassels on garments. But I want to encourage you not to overlook the vast importance of these rules for God's people, especially not here, especially not after the people of Israel have rejected their God and they've been banished to the wilderness. And so don't overlook the fact that this chapter, the Lord speaks of what life will be like when he says, verse 2, when they come into the land they are to inhabit. That's his first word after the rebellion. He speaks of promise, doesn't he? Don't overlook the importance of these rules. When the Lord puts an exclamation point on them at the end, telling them four different ways, four times, I am the Lord, your God. I brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord, your God, he says. And he's reaffirming his covenant commitments to his children. Don't overlook the importance of these rules for God's family. Well, there are three kinds of uh, rules in this chapter, three basic categories of laws. The first that we find is a series of laws concerning abundance. Our first point today, laws about abundance. Verse 1, uh, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land you are to inhabit, which I am giving you. And you offer to the Lord from the herd of the flock a food offering, burnt offering, a sacrifice. To fulfill a vow or as a free will offering at your appointed feast, to make a pleasing aroma to the Lord, verse 4, then he who brings his offering shall offer to the Lord a grain offering. Verse 5 adds a drink offering. And so far, it's very Old Testament-y. Right? It's exactly what we come to expect reading in the Torah, where we know that the Lord goes in exhaustive detail about the kinds of sacrifices and offerings that his people are supposed to bring, and he tells them everything about how to separate the fat from the kidneys and, and what to do with, uh, with the guts and the skin and where to bury the ashes. And sometimes it feels like God gives us a little more detail about these sacrifices than we really felt we needed, but it's what we expect when we read these books. Can you imagine how surprised some of the Israelites must have been when they heard this, though? How relieved they must have been. Can you imagine how this was not at all what they expected from the Lord at just this point in their history with him? Remember again that chapter 14 ended with judgment, and it ended with defeat. God's people going up in the land thinking that they will take it, whether the Lord is with them or not, and they're defeated all the way to Hormah. And in chapter, 30, uh, chapter 14, verse 34, excuse me, verse 34, God said that for 40 years in the wilderness, this nation would bear their iniquity and that they would know his displeasure. I don't know how you show your displeasure. 
If you talk to my long-suffering wife after the service, she will probably tell you that when the sour mood strikes me, I can put on the silent treatment with the best of them. That's not how the Lord treats his people. Yes, he is displeased with their sin, but he does not allow his displeasure to become indifference. He does not turn away from them and abandon them. So the first thing that we learn after that defeat at Hormah is that the Lord is still speaking to his people. He's still reminding them that his promises shall be fulfilled. He is determined to bring them into the land that he's preparing for them. And when he does, he says they will worship him and they will rejoice with the abundance that he will provide for them. That's why you notice that in this passage, the focus is not really on what to do with the skin and the guts and where to bury the ashes. The focus is really not on the animals at all. The focus is also on uh, this extra offering that the worshiper is to bring. Flour and oil and wine in their proper proportions. And you see it there, we read it, as the value of the animal increases, so do these extra offerings. So one-tenth of an ephah of flour for a lamb, two-tenths for a ram, three-tenths for a bull. It goes on and on. The Lord gives his specific instructions. But I hope you see that in giving these rules, the Lord is not laying a blessing on his, uh, I'm sorry, he's not laying a burden on his people. Rather, he's proclaiming a blessing. Excuse me. He's not laying a burden with these rules, but proclaiming a blessing. He's telling them that there is a day coming when these sacrifices and these offerings and gifts to the Lord, there's a day coming when these things will make sense. Actually, right now, they don't make sense. Not where they are. That's why the Lord says, this is for later. This isn't for now. This is for later when you come into the land. Right now, they couldn't have given these things to the Lord even if they had wanted to. Here is this people wandering around the wilderness. Here are they are daily depending upon the Lord for, for water from a rock and manna from heaven. They're traipsing around in this nomadic lifestyle, following rain clouds, making sure that their herds have enough water to drink to make it through the next dry spell. And in that context, the Lord does not demand from them what they do not have to give. Actually, if you remember, that's the way the last master of the Israelites worked, wasn't it? Think back to their time in Egypt. When Pharaoh was displeased, he said, you know, you still have to give me all of those bricks, but you don't have any straw now. And it was a burden upon them to demand what they did not have to give. But with the Lord, he's saying, you know, there's a day that you're going to be filled to overflowing. There's a day coming that you're going to have everything I require of you. There's a day coming when his covenant would reach completion, when it would overflow in the abundance of his people. In fact, the Lord promises to bless his people so completely that even after Israel has everything they need, there's still going to be plenty left over for others. That was always the promise to Abraham, wasn't it? that he was going to make his family a blessing to all families, that through Abraham and through his seed, he was going to extend the Lord's abundance into all the peoples of the earth. So in verses 13 to 16, the Lord is saying that the life of Israel in the promised land, this is going to be a preview of that worldwide blessing. When sojourners can come and find shelter together with God's people. Look at verse 15. 
Notice that he calls them the assembly. And then in the assembly, he connects both the native, that's also a statement that doesn't make sense in the wilderness. There's a day coming when they will be natives. The native in the land and the sojourner, he says they're the same assembly. Verse 15, for the assembly, there shall be one statute for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you. A statute forever throughout your generations, you and the sojourner shall be alike before the Lord. So away with this stingy, small-minded, ethnically bound kingdom mindset. Christ sent his disciples into all the nations, and he sent them out because that was always the plan. The Lord's work was never meant to remain the possession of a single family. The people of God were always supposed to be a light for the nations. The church of God has always meant to reach far and wide with the abundance of the Lord. And you can trace that back through Jesus sending the disciples. You can trace it back through the prophets. You can trace it back through Israel. You can chase it back to Abraham. And here in the wilderness, God is promising that when he gathers his people into their land of inheritance, then the offerings of his multicultural assembly are going to be a mark of his power, not theirs. A perpetual reminder that he has done for them more than they ever could have imagined. And it's coming in the future, says the Lord, when you come into the land. So that future blessing is repeated in verse 17. The Lord adds this requirement concerning the portion from the bowl. Verse 17, when you come into the land to which I will bring you, and when you eat of the bread of the land, then you shall present a contribution to the Lord. Interpreters are divided over whether this was uh, an annual contribution, like uh, the first fruits of every harvest, or whether it was more regular than that. Maybe every time a family made their batch of daily bread, maybe they would uh, take a little lump of the dough and, and set it aside. We're not entirely sure. But we do know that whether it was yearly or weekly, the meaning is the same. This was a reminder that the abundance of the Lord extended all the way down to the household level. It was not just the nation, corporately, that was blessed by Yahweh, but each individual family who called upon his name. The abundance of the Lord filtered down to the household level, and so worship of the Lord also ought to be a household matter. From the first of each kneading bowl, from the first lump of each loaf, a contribution was given to remember the goodness of the Lord. And you notice, after they're waiting for that generation to die, how often the Lord says you are to maintain this throughout your generations. There will be more generations, the Lord is saying. And you must keep these commandments. Well, there's the basic shape of these laws about uh, the offerings, about abundance. I think we can say that from the New Testament perspective, the Lord is teaching us the same things about himself that he was teaching the Old Testament Israelites with these laws. The lesson for us is that it is the Lord himself who sustains our worship, and he does it through his own abundant gifts. He gives us everything he requires of us. He gives it as a gift, and he gives it so that we would take joy in his giving. That's true at least on two levels, probably more. Foundationally, of course, it's true that the Lord gives us the gift of reconciliation that brings us into worship of him in the first place. 
One of the many gospel connections in this passage comes when we recognize that all of these sacrificial offerings in the Old Covenant are pointers looking forward to the perfect work of Christ at Calvary. He is our sacrifice. He is our whole burnt offering. His gift of himself is the pleasing aroma that makes Christians acceptable in God's sight. And so foundationally, through Jesus Christ, God gives us the gift of reconciliation. He brings us into a place where we can begin to worship him in the first place. But on another level, the Lord also gives us every gift that he calls to give back to his glory. Actually, that's what the, the first half of this chapter is dealing with. I already mentioned that, that this really is not about those bloody sacrifices, but about the things that accompanied those sacrifices what we almost might call secondary sacrifices. So the focus is not on these animals, but, but on the daily staples that went with them. Grain and oil and wine. Those are the things of everyday life in ancient Israel. They were the gifts of the people that declared that every shred of their existence was meant to be an offering to the Lord. It was a reminder that every time they offered wine at the altar... Every time they set aside a ball of dough in their household, God's people were proclaiming that all they have in this life has come from his hand, and it's to be used to serve him. And isn't our Christian life meant to be lived the same way? In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul references these secondary sacrifices. He's preparing Timothy for a ministry that that lies ahead. He tells Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, he says, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. He's preparing Timothy to serve the Lord with all that he has. In the very next verse, he compares the job that Timothy is about to do with the one that he's just about done doing. He says in verse 6, As for you, be sober-minded, verse 6, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. The question for you, believer, is what does it mean to fight the good fight? What does it mean to finish the race that the Lord has marked out in your Christian calling? Paul says it looks like a drink offering. Jesus says it looks like taking up your cross daily and following him. Living out your life in Christ looks like adding your daily secondary sacrifice of obedience to this pleasing aroma of Jesus Christ on your behalf. But where do you get that kind of gift to give to the Lord? You get it from him. He gives it to you so that you can give it back. Uh, maybe I have family matters on the mind, I don't know, but, but it's like when Christmas is getting near. And you have young children in the household, and they really want to get daddy a gift, but you know full well they don't have any money of their own. Well, you take them to the store anyway, right? And you watch their face light up as you reach into the family bank account, and you buy the gift that's just going to go back to the one who fills the family bank account. But they're so excited. Why? Because they've received something, and they can give it back to someone they love dearly. That's what the Lord is calling for here. When you go into the land and you eat the bread and you have the abundance that I'm going to give to you, you can go ahead and give a little bit of it back to me. 
all of your Christian life is meant to be lived that way. Out of the overflowing abundance that the Holy Spirit works into God's people, the obedience that he gives us, we don't have it in ourselves. Our accounts are empty. But he fills us to overflowing with faith and love and obedience in him. He causes the fruits of his spirit to grow in our lives so that we can hand them over to the Lord and say, look what I got for you. And so the Lord teaches his children about abundance. Starting in verse 22, the Lord gives them laws concerning forgiveness. Forgiveness. Verse 22, but if you sin unintentionally and you do not observe all these commandments that the Lord has spoken to Moses, then you shall bring your offering. And verse 25 says, the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of Israel and they shall be forgiven. That's the basic message. The message is that even when God's people fail to observe the commandments that he has given them, even when God's people sin against their God, there is yet hope for forgiveness. This is another message that they needed to hear immediately after their rebellion. The Lord has just reaffirmed his promises for the land, the good things that he's going to do for them, but you know, right now where they are, those things might seem very far away. God's pleasure might seem very far away while his displeasure still remains on them. And the the memory of their sin is so large and it looms so greatly in their view that they might at least be tempted to wonder if there really is forgiveness with the Lord. Haven't they blown it this time? Haven't they gone farther than they could have? And that's why the phrase is repeated two more times. Shows up in verse 26. It shows up in verse 28. Three times total, the Lord assures his people when they seek his mercy through his appointed sacrifice, he says, The priest shall make atonement and they shall be forgiven. It's another promise of the Lord. It is his ironclad guarantee, something to be received by faith, though our eyes do not yet see the fruit of it. They shall be be forgiven. Now, if you're familiar with uh, the Old Testament sacrificial system, I hope this is refreshingly old news for you. In fact, the provisions of of this chapter, dealing specifically with these unintentional sins, it's really a, a restatement, it's a summary of a much larger parallel passage, Leviticus chapters four through six. It's squeezed and condensed and repeated here for us with a a few important things added. But it's there in Leviticus that the Lord covers all those various sacrifices that he's instituted for the sins of his people. And the reason the Lord gave these sacrifices in the first place is so that his people would know that he is the God of forgiveness. So he gave them laws and rules about atonement so that his longing people would look forward to the day that he himself would come and deal with their iniquity. And the New Testament picks up where that Old Testament longing ends. So 1 John chapter 2, he reminds us, little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world, says John. 
And it all means that the message for God's people, both in the Old Testament and in the New, is that our sin need not remain a barrier between us and the God who has made us. Yes, it's true. Your sin has made a separation between you and your God so that he does not hear you when you call to him. That's what Isaiah says. It's true that your sin has made a separation between you and your God. It's also true that Jesus Christ has made himself a sacrifice for sinners. And so there is forgiveness for those who trust in God's appointed sacrifice. Now again, that's the basic message, but you might notice that the details get pretty complicated pretty quickly. They get complicated because this passage about sin and atonement, well, it, it deals with iniquity in a few categories that we may not be used to dealing in. For one, it deals in categories of community sins versus individual sins. Again, chapter 14, the Lord has just confronted a sin of the entire community. The first verses of that chapter, you can go back and read them three different ways. Moses uh, goes out of his way to show us it was everyone who was involved. The whole congregation of Israel began grumbling. All of the people turned aside. And then in other places, we read of whole nations, whole peoples, whole groups involved in some sin for which the only proper response is whole nation repentance. Remember Jonah, the classic example? When the prophet of God comes to Assyria, we read in Jonah that the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. They didn't have the benefit of all of God's promises and all of his commandments. Let's be honest. Jonah's sermon was lacking in many ways when he went to Nineveh. They didn't know everything that God had told them, but they did what sinners ought to do when they recognized their sin. They humbled themselves in repentance before the Lord. They did it as a people. They did it as a whole community seeking forgiveness. Now, how do we apply this to ourselves? I'm sure that you can probably think of ways that our nation needs to repent as a people for the sins we are involved in. I'm sure you can conjure up all of those hot-button issues swirling around the culture around us. But you know, God's word says that judgment begins at the house of God. So while we pray for the repentance of our nation, I think we ought to pray for the repentance of our nation. Much more, we ought to pray for the repentance of our churches. What are the sins that the American evangelical church needs to repent of as a larger community? Let me suggest a few. How about our overwhelming, aching materialism that makes church look just like the world around us? How about that plan of seeking significance and safety and cultural clout by aligning ourselves as believers and as churches, aligning ourselves with and endorsing professional politicians who hate the gospel of Jesus Christ? How about preaching buzzwords about social justice and marginalization while the word of Jesus Christ and him crucified goes unmentioned? How about the sin of taking pride in our very correct theology while we ignore lies of hospitality and love to those outside of our congregations? 
How about the sin of not catechizing our children? Refusing to pass the faith on from one generation to the next, and then turning and getting angry at the Lord when the children want nothing to do with the faith of their fathers. I think it's a lot easier to think of those things as individual issues. And the scripture often calls us, I think more often calls us to repent individually, but the scripture also deals with corporate sin corporately. We need to have categories for that as well. Far more complicated, though, I think, is this category of unintentional sins versus sins committed, verse 30 says, with a high hand. You notice that verse 22 is the first to add that qualifier. It says, but if you sin unintentionally, you do not observe all these commandments. Verse 25, it's repeated with a bit more specificity. And the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the people of Israel, and they shall be forgiven because it was a mistake. That almost makes it sound like an oops. Like an accident, like something that just happened, and you don't know where it came from. And if your fearful heart works the way that my fearful heart works, you look at that and you say, wait a minute. What about when it's not a mistake? What about the sins that you sin or like those that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7, where you know that it's wrong, but you can't seem to stop doing the wrong you wish you could stop doing? What about those sins that you commit, not because you didn't know they were wrong, but because you didn't know how to stop them? What about those sins that you choose in a moment of desperation while your faith is still so small that you haven't learned to simply wait for the Lord to show up? What do you do then? Hopefully this text, we wonder, hopefully this text isn't teaching that there's no forgiveness that sins, uh, for sins that you know are sinful when you do them. Now, in order to understand what God's word is telling us here, I think we need to consider deeply this, this idea of unintentional sin. So bear with me while we do a little bit of word study, will you? Uh, the phrase, and you can see the footnote in our English Standard Version, the phrase that, uh, that is behind sin unintentionally is the same as that word that's behind sin by mistake. It's the same word throughout the text. In the Old Testament, that word shows up almost exclusively in this chapter and also in that parallel passage in Leviticus chapters 4 through 6. It simply means that our context clues are pretty limited. There's not a lot outside of these contexts to help us understand what's going on. It does also show up later in Numbers, Numbers chapter 35, verse 15. There the Lord is designating those cities of refuge. And he says there that the cities of refuge are for those who have killed another person without intent, without malicious forethought. This is an accidental death. This is the distinction that most courts today make between murder and manslaughter. Was it premeditated is the question. Was it intentional or was it accidental? So it shows up in those contexts. But, but the word uh, in our text also has a few parallel roots. There's a lot of overlap, overlap with a few other uh, pair words in the Old Testament. And when those pair words show up, they often mean something like to go astray. They mean something like to veer off of the proper path. 1 Samuel chapter 26. David confronts Saul because Saul has been hunting him down to the mountains of Israel. And when Saul realizes his guilt, he says this, 1 Samuel 26 verse 21. 
He says, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm. Behold, I have acted foolishly. I have made a great mistake. There's our word. Saul says, I've made a great mistake. What does it mean? Well, it doesn't mean that he mustered his troops and and tromped all through the hill country just by accident. I I don't know. We just ended up here. It doesn't mean that, oops, the, the spear leapt out of his hand that time when David was in the courtyard. It doesn't mean that it was unintentional or accidental. It doesn't mean that Saul was powerless to stop what he was doing. But it does mean that when he was confronted with his sin, he recognized his guilt. It meant that he knew that he had strayed from the right path. And he was willing to cry out and ask for forgiveness. Actually, that's the same idea that shows up in Leviticus. Chapter 4, verse 27. Leviticus 4.27 says, If any one of the common people sins unintentionally, in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, and realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish for his sin which he has committed. What does it mean? It means that the kind of sin that the Lord forgives is any sin that the sinner confesses. Sins that we go to the Lord asking his forgiveness for because we know and we realize that that's exactly what we need. It's true. Sometimes our sin arises out of fear. It arises out of weakness. It arises out of a lack of faith. Sometimes our sin comes from the weakness of our flesh. It comes out of this indecipherable mass of motives that are buried somewhere deep in our depraved human hearts. But wherever it comes from, the scripture is clear. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? Because we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. Now on the other hand, Numbers 15 also warns us about sins committed with a high hand. That language describes sins committed brazenly. Sins that are intended to provoke the Lord to his face. It's the same term in Exodus 14 that describes the people when they're going out of Egypt at last, defiantly, it says, thumbing their nose at Pharaoh because they know that he can't touch them. He can't stop them even if he wanted to. And the term shows up here and says sometimes there are people who sin against the Lord like that. Sins with a high hand begin by convincing yourself that there is no accountability. There's no one to stop you. There's no one to judge. And so you prove it by sinning just for the sake of sinning. The Lord says when sins are committed that way, it's a triple offense. Verses 30 and 31. It says sins committed with a high hand do three things. They revile the Lord. They despise his word. They break his commandment. They're blasphemous. They're hateful. They are intentionally aimed at doing what God says must not be done. In the end, sins with a high hand never lead to repentance because they're sins that don't believe that repentance is necessary. 
And the only possible punishment is the worst judgment that the Old Testament ever gives. It's a picture of something eternal, though it takes place in the temporal realm. The punishment is that that person shall be utterly cut off, completely. No offspring, no heritage, no name, no remembrance. They shall be separated from the covenant and the promises of God forever. And in case you're wondering what that means, what it looks like, that section right after there, the Sabbath breaker executed, that shows us what it means to be utterly cut off from God's people. Verse 36 says, under God's direction, the whole congregation took this man outside the camp and they put him to death. The crime of despising the Lord. In the end, it's a very heavy teaching. It's an even heavier example of the finality of unrepentance, but I hope you don't miss the positive message in this section. These laws for God's people teach us that the Lord promises forgiveness for those who trust in his sacrifice. Well, the Lord has rules for his family. He teaches them about abundance. He teaches them about forgiveness. And then in these last few verses, he teaches them finally about remembrance. Verse 38. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations. You've probably seen them. You've been in an airport. You've been traveling somewhere. You've seen some observant Jew, and out of the the overcoat hanging out, there's a four-cornered garment, and on each corner of the garment, there is a a cord tied with knots and string, and uh, and it's there, and and those tassels are called tzitzit. That's the name that comes from this passage in Numbers chapter 15, and Jews who who still use those and still wear them uh, trace that practice all the way back to the commandment that shows up here. And as the text tells us, the purpose was very simple. You would put those on your garments so that you'd look at them so that you would remember. So that you would remember the commandments of the Lord to do them. Again, context is key. The nation received this direction while they're wandering in the wilderness. The judgment of that former generation is a reminder that if they could turn aside from the Lord just 14 months in the wilderness, I'm pretty sure this next generation could do it in 40 years. And so the Lord gave them a sign to remember. He gave them a physical memento they could carry around with them, something they could seal and see and touch and feel and remember God's commandments. Just like all the men in the nation bore the sign of circumcision. Just like all their beards and the corner of their hair were to be kept long, just like their clothes to be woven of a single kind of thread. Actually, as you come to think of it, the Lord has given his people lots of remembrances. Lots of visual aids, lots of helps aimed in the same direction. He says it was to keep the people from following after their own heart and their own eyes, which they were inclined to whore after. Just like, quite frankly, you are too. And in the days of their pilgrimage, those those things were a blessing. They were a help from the Lord to remind them, to, uh, to identify God's people, and to show them his promises. But you know, in the end, they were never enough. In fact, they were never intended to be enough. That's why through Jeremiah, the Lord promised to make a change one day that would be far more permanent. He promised a day coming when the law would no longer be written on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of their hearts. 
if we were going to riff on Jeremiah with Numbers 15 here, we would say there's a day coming where God's command will no longer be tied onto your garments, but to be woven into your very character. And the things that you want and the things that you love and the, the way that you desire and follow the Lord is going to become a part of you internally, not just externally. There's a day coming when that heart that is prone to wander will be subdued by an internal working of God's Holy Spirit. The day coming when the Lord himself will be at work to keep his people close to his commandments. Of course, sometimes Christians wear crosses around their necks. They dress in ways that remind them of their faith, and that's okay. As long as it doesn't become a crutch for you, as long as it doesn't become a way that you judge other Christians for not being as sanctified as you are. That's okay. But we also need to know that where the substance of God's promise has come by the Spirit, we no longer need these shadowy commands. As one Old Testament scholar puts it plainly, he says, this Old Testament commandment finds no equivalent in the New Testament. Have you noticed that the people of God go out in the world and, and Jesus doesn't say, now make sure you remember to wear your whatever. Make sure you have this so everybody knows you. He doesn't send them out with external signs, rather with an internal work of the Spirit. In fact, the Lord has given us a far greater reminder. Not one that we carry on our bodies, but one that we share together in His presence. The Lord's reminder for His New Testament church is the table of Jesus Christ. It is, as these tassels were, it's a reminder of the commandments that He's given us faith and obedience that bring us to the Father through Jesus Christ. The Lord's table is a call to daily obedience and bearing our crosses after him. But primarily, the table of the Lord Jesus Christ is a reminder that our God has not forgotten us. You ever consider that? Put this on your garments so that you will remember to obey, says the Lord. When we come to this table, we do this Remembrance of him. Remembrance that he's coming again. Remembrance of his promises, of his pleasing aroma before the Lord, the way that he reconciles us to the Father. We come to his table and we remember and we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. At the table we remember that it's the Lord who has made us his. It's the Lord who will take us to himself and give us an inheritance and at the table, we remember that it's the Lord who brings us into his abundance through Christ. We're going to come to that table now. And please join me together in prayer. Well, gracious God and Father, we pray that we would hear and obey and follow you. We thank you for the gift of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Help us to walk closely with him. Give us faith in all of your promises until the day they are completed. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.